0: ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Grant's Interest Rate Observer of the Air. I am Jim Grant, and with me today, as usual, is uh, to my left, Eric Whitehead, who is spinning the controls, and uh, Phil Grant, who runs our almost- daily grants, a must-read, almost daily summary of goings-on on in Wall Street. And uh, directly ahead of me is the great Evan Lorenz, the deputy editor of grants. Oh, yes, today we are sponsored. We got uh, a new sponsor in Purple Mattress. It's the cure for what ails you between the hours of uh, midnight and five in the morning, or if you're like me, between the hours of about one o'clock and about 3.30 in the morning. We'll see about this insomnia cure in just a moment. And uh, of course, we have uh, our old friend, uh, Zip Recruiter. It seems that everybody's hiring and, uh, I don't know, it's a very timely macroeconomic sponsor, Evan, don't you think? Uh, yes. We have a guest today, and she is none other than Francine McKenna, who is the uh, knowing, knowledgeable, and uh, insightful, they call them the transparency report, it used to be accounting or auditing, but today it's transparency at MarketWatch. And she has widely published, and uh, is fluent in Spanish, as well as her native English. She just knows everything, is my estimation of <laughs> Francine McKenna. And she is, yet, I think more relevantly than omniscience, is the specific knowledge she has accumulated in more than 25 years in and around the business of consulting and auditing, including Francine, what's most struck me about your very formidable bio is the fact that um, you actually were at PwC—that's uh, Price Waterhouse and you audited PwC itself. That's a kind of a self-audit, which seems—I did. Frankly, it seems did, a, little, yeah. a little fishy to me, but yeah, let that go by. Hey, uh, Francine, we shouldn't let that go by. How does Price Waterhouse Cooper audit itself?
1: Well, it was an interesting opportunity in 2005. Shortly after Sarbanes Oxley was implemented in 2002, the firms were sort of reorganizing themselves to be able to respond to a new regulator. You know, they had been self regulated forever and ever, and now they had this outside regulator, the PCAOB, and they had to get themselves reorganized to be able to respond to, um, you know, inspections and other kinds of scrutiny from an outside, you know, government regulator. And so they were building a team that was going to do more than just audit and inspect partner expense reports, they had to really look at whether they were prepared to um, do things like make sure that their independent uh, policies and procedures were up to speed, that their systems could respond to the request for information, things like that. So they put together a good team. In fact, um, Richard Chambers is now the president of the Institute of Internal Auditors, was one of my teammates. He has a very long uh, record as an inspector general in the federal government. And he went about, you know, going from internal operation to make sure that they understood they were going to start having outside people.
0: So uh, you gave your employer a clean bill of health, did you?
1: Well, uh, I was there a year and a half, and I left, and that's when I decided to start my blog, Read the Auditors. And I uh, one of the hard things about being an internal auditor within a public accounting firm is that you have a lot of partners around who think they know, uh-huh. um, you know, the way things are, and they don't really like being told that maybe some of them are putting are putting the firm at risk. Yeah, you know, but, I have that. I, have I was that, an Popular yeah. employee. <laughs> yeah, I have
0: that experience at Grants too. Everybody here is an expert. Francine is uh, registered as a CPA, but not licensed, uh, which uh, actually reminds me that none of us around this table is licensed either, right? Anybody got a license? No, driver's license, but that's, yeah. So Francine, we have um, a bunch of questions. Evan took the lead in compiling these. Evan, as you may know, uh, does so much of our um, own uh, Hollywood-worthy theme is investigative reporting. He does an investigating of financial documents. So here's one, and uh, this comes directly from the keyboard, of Evan Lorenz. So, given your background as an auditor, uh, what do you think most investors get wrong in how they read and utilize financial statements? What What are the characteristic errors?
1: Well, what I'm seeing the most, you know, at MarketWatch is an enormous focus on earnings releases and earnings reports and the conference calls, and fewer and fewer people are actually digging into the Q's and the K's. Right. Correct. And Um, you know, I was just sort of flabbergasted when I started getting questions from my colleagues at MarketWatch. They, you know, they said, oh, we have a resident accountant. We can get her to explain things to us. And they were asking me questions about things that the companies are saying in the earnings releases. And, you know, the reason why they're confused is because there's no there there. You know, it's all promotion. And especially with the proliferation of uh, non-get metrics and all kinds of other spins, you have to look at the queue. And they said, well, you know, by the time uh, the Q comes out we're on to the next quarter and (laughs) so the reporters are not looking at the Q's and the K's and there is a lot a lot of really good detail there despite the fact that companies do their best try to legalize it and you know opiate sometimes or there's inconsistent disclosure there's still a lot of detail and if you're really um, interested in a company you absolutely have to go and look at the consistency between what companies say in their earnings releases and on their calls with what they eventually disclose. Correct,
0: right? So in the, in the current issue of Grants, just out now for subscribers, and you can be one, by the way, ladies and gentlemen. Just takes a phone call or a little click of a mouse. In our current issue, we delve into the uh, the Qs and the Ks and the As and the Bs and the Cs of a certain company that is all about I don't know records, right? We we ran a graph that right. uh, we ran a graph, thanks to Evan, of a bar graph of of the. Of the frequency of the word record in various <laughs> earnings releases and this thing looks like a stock you really want to go on it goes straight
2: up it looks like we're in a peak records or record records or a bubble in records
0: so francine so um uh, so revenue recognition is an art right right okay right, so right. is it is it a More represent so than ever yeah. before. is it a representational yeah. art is it uh, impressionistic or is it like dada
1: well the reason why we made a change, why, why the accounting standards boards uh, and the SEC made the changes, the recent changes, is because there had been so many different um, rules that had developed um, for every single industry. So it was becoming a huge tapestry of uh, varying kinds of interpretations and rules that required an enormous amount of uh, study and still interpretation and judgment. And so they've tried to sort of smooth things out, but in doing so, what they've uh, accomplished is to make uh, a principles-based standard for revenue recognition rather than a rules-based standard. And uh, I was just talking to a former SEC um, uh, senior person uh, the other day who's now back at one of the firms, and they said basically, you know, it used to be that we wanted consistency, Um, If you saw something reported a particular way, let's say revenue recognition, uh, according to uh, a certain business model in one company, you can expect or at least push to see that same approach in other companies, at least in that same industry. All bets are off now, and the SEC has said as much. And so it's going to take an interpretation of every single set of facts, and you're not going to be able to count on the SEC to necessarily dictate to companies. Um, that they should do things one way or the other, unless their uh, their uh, uh, exception is egregious.
0: Francine, how ha- how has the uh, the vogue in indexed investing contributed to the uh, the reduction in the rigor and the attention paid to these financial statements?
1: Well, just in general, I think we we I lament the loss of fundamental investing, despite the fact that there are a few of us, you know, uh, present company. Uh, who believe in it, in general, we see that people are trading on momentum. They're trading on the earnings releases. They're not looking at uh, whether that rhetoric even matches the actual business uh, results of the company. And so index investing allows you to, uh, you know, upset yourself even further from worrying about, um, you know, uh, what goes up or what goes
0: down and why. Okay, so um, Francine, Evan's, Evan's got uh, some great quiet. Evan, uh, would you f- please favor Francine with question number
2: two? This is one that I really wonder myself. So most investors tend to think that auditors are the key player in putting together a financial report. However, they're just one of the groups that actually are involved in drafting a 10K or a 10Q report. Could you kind of walk us through what's the role of a company's management, a company's lawyers, and auditors uh, play in drafting a financial report for the SEC? So
1: the aud- are absolutely positively not supposed to be drafting the financial statements. They are supposed to be reviewing the financial statements that the company prepares, that the company's management prepares. And the company is supposed to have competent, professional, knowledgeable people, or they're supposed to pay for them uh, from the outside to prepare the financial information to represent the kind of things that they're doing. So if they have complicated derivatives, they need to have people that understand the accounting for complicated derivatives. The auditors come in after the fact and look at how the company has represented that information in their financial statements. And they're looking to see whether or not the company has followed generally accepted accounting principles gap or IFRS or whatever their, their standard of reporting is in the country that they're in. And that's where sort of the, the, the gray area comes in. Companies um, tend to ask their auditors if they have good relationships for advice or information about how they feel about certain approaches in order to maybe not make a mistake or not go too far in something. In particular, when they're making an acquisition or they're thinking about some other kind of business transaction, they're saying, well, you know, How would uh, you look at this uh, once it lands in the financial statements? That's a gray area that, you know, uh, is always sort of subject to scrutiny by the SEC, whether the auditors have gotten in too deep and put their hands in the actual preparation. Because the cardinal rule of auditing is you do not audit work that you've done yourself. So you have those situations come up when the auditors get too involved in developing uh, the numbers for the tax provisions. You have those situations come up when you have the auditors, uh, as I said, get too involved in helping the company decide if an acquisition is a good idea based on the potential accounting treatment. You have those situations come up like with the revenue recognition implementation, where I saw and I reported that I thought way too many audit firms were getting involved in the detailed work of assessing how companies would be impacted by the revenue recognition rules and helping companies create the adjustments or uh, revisions that they needed to make and how they were approaching the new standards. You know, it, it's sort of difficult. They're sitting right there, and a company that's maybe not so sophisticated as, let's say, a GE or a GM, uh, and I'm making a joke there, will not need to ask their auditor for advice. They'll take a bold They take an aggressive approach. Microsoft's a good example. They're very confident in their approach accounting with, with or without their auditor. But many companies are not, and they're very overly dependent on the auditor because they don't want to have a problem when the audit has to be done. They don't want to be told they made a mistake. They don't want a restatement. They don't want to have to correct an error. They don't want to hold up in uh, the publishing of the financial statement. So the auditors are not supposed to be preparing the financial statements. The only situation that that occurs is in a very small private company uh, if uh, you're not a broker-dealer. Um, you can have that assistance, but then you're not preparing financial statements that are audited according to um, SEC standards. Thank
0: you, Francine. So we're gonna we're gonna just uh, take one moment, and uh, and your uh, ladies and gentlemen, I'm gonna tell you about the insomnia busting product called Purple Mattress. Now, here's a question: uh, How did you sleep last night? Well, it's a little touchy subject around my house because um, I don't know. Sometimes uh, it just doesn't work, the sleeping thing. I, uh, we had a dog once, Otis. Remember Otis? Oh, great. Uh, a great Labrador Retriever, one. yeah. And Otis could sleep on a bed of nails. This dog... Just not a care of the world. And I would watch him go to sleep. I'd say, How does he do it? Stupid envy. Not envying. a little bit of envy there. Yeah, right. envying a Labrador retriever. He had a good appetite, too. Uh-huh. Good looking animal. Yeah. But what a sleeper. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, sleeping shouldn't be so hard. But here's this mattress that is going to solve your insomnia problem if you got one. For example, I said, Okay, so I got 7,000 words. That's about uh, almost 30 double spaced pages of copy. It'll never say tomorrow and i try to get to sleep it's the darn mattress i can't get to sleep i toss and turn just because there's 30 double spaced pages due tomorrow mattress is full so the purple smart comfort grid is scientifically engineered to adapt to any body or a sleeping position that's going to solve that problem it works by actively cradling your shoulders and hips while gently supporting your back for a unique zero-gravity feel. Ah, you can't go wrong. It's a 100-night risk-free trial. If you're not fully satisfied, you can return your mattress for a full refund. Free shipping and returns. So you're going to love Purple. And uh, right now, our listeners will get free, that's right, free sheet, set, and mattress cover with your mattress purchase. Just go to purple.com grant. That's purple.com grant. Purple.com grant. Just you like Otis, right? That's right. Yeah.
2: Okay. Uh, It's a good place to be.
0: I want to ask question number three, or actually I'm going to skip to question number four, Evan. I don't care what you say. I'm going directly to four because this is a juicy one. Francine, uh, are certain law firms uh, more likely to push the envelope than others? And I I would like you to name those law firms because I I don't know. I think they they want the publicity.
1: Well, I think that, you know, depending on the type of company, so technology companies have their favorite law firms. Companies that are going through IPOs have the law firms that support that process. Companies that defend the, the big, big, big conglomerates, you know, the GMs of the world have the big white shoe law firms. So I think that the most important factor in determining whether a law firm is or has pushed the envelope is how long they've been working with the company and how close those relationships were and to what extent there's an uh, any kind of interconnectedness. So, for example, on the IPO side or the startup side, whether the the law firm has a venture segment where the partners are taking a stake in companies that they're also providing legal advice. That that uh, happens, does
0: it, to law firms investing? Right,
1: yeah. So, um, you know, the the famous boy situation with Serrano, where he was providing advice and also sitting on the board and uh, had an investment. Uh, wh- which Wilson one? Which Frantini, one was this, Francine?
0: Francine, which one was that?
1: Um, uh, Boy Schiller. in uh, Theranos. A, ah,
0: ah, yes. Yes, in Theranos. Yes.
1: Uh, Wilson Francini has a venture capital arm. Many of the West Coast law firms that work with technology companies have been known to mix it up quite a bit.
0: Now, Francine, have you uh, been aware of of uh, any law firm resigning an account? Uh, on a matter of principle?
1: I'm sure that's occurred. I can't think of one off the top of my head. No. Why are you sure <laughs> that
0: would have occurred, Francie? <laughs> Oh no! Like I know. The, <laughs> that was, a, that was a, so. Like, let's go back. Like, let's go back. Like to number the accounting three.
1: Accounting firms. There's mm-hmm. good people in all firms, and uh, the problem is the leadership. Often, you yeah. know, uh, everybody, everybody ends up making a hard decision. The ethical people make a hard decision. Sometimes, do they want to stay employed or do they want to um, do the right yeah, thing? Well, it's the
0: same way and, around in this office. I can assure you of that. Right. It's a leadership problem. Hey, number three, in particular, who is responsible, as a rule, for drafting the footnotes and the risk factors? So that those, you know, things we have to turn to first. That's where the. Yeah. Yeah. So who does that?
1: that? That's a tricky area. Again, management will do that in conjunction with the attorneys, And that is the one thing that the auditors get very involved in or are supposed to get very involved in during the quarterly uh, process. So they don't audit on a quarterly basis, but they do review disclosures to make sure that they're not inconsistent with the financial information or that they don't mislead. So they have an obligation to review the financial disclosures. One of the things that um, is afoot and is, keeps recurring is this idea of materiality. So the idea of what's in the footnotes is based on materiality. And there's a, a discussion about and has been, you know, uh, comes back uh, periodically that the auditors, you know, should not be weighing in on whether a disclosure for the footnotes is material or not, that that should be a legal decision, not an, a, not an accounting or auditing standards uh, decision. And so the whole idea is to cut the auditor's of even looking at the footnotes because that'll hold up the process if somebody wants to stick their
2: hand up and, and uh, question something. A f- a Francine, in, in terms of putting together stuff for a, a, a statement, WeWork, which is a, a company that rents off fractional office space to, um, you know, startups and businesses alike, right. uh, loaded a bond prospectus recently, and they had this thing called community adjusted EBITDA. And if you actually <laughs> flow through the statement, it was adjusted EBITDA. Who's responsible for that? And who, who checks those numbers? And who, who jumped it up? That's the question I want. <laughs> well,
1: will tell you that they do not review non-GAAP numbers for the plain uh, vanilla reason that that's non-GAAP right so they're looking at the financial statements and the non-GAAP information is provided typically in the in the queues I mean in the earnings uh, releases and in the conference calls and in other kinds of conversations so they do not uh, review the auditors do not review the earnings releases they do not review the conference calls they're not responsible for that however again, they have to look at whether or not in the actual financial statements that those metrics are misleading or doing something that they're not supposed to do in terms of representing financial information. So they can't, you know, create a non-GAAP or you know one of these hybrid uh, adjusted, adjusted, adjusted numbers. They just did. Uh, they just did to a substitute financial statement.
0: <laughs> All right. So um, I want to interrupt this um, uh, this scintillating discussion about accounting with uh, a quick word about ZipRecruiter, and I'm going to send this ad out specifically to Jay Powell, who's the chairman of the Federal Reserve Board. Well, are you hiring? Uh, Yeah, uh, a lot of people are hiring, and the Federal Reserve, uh, I think, is noticing. So every business needs great people and a better way to find them. So something better than posting your job online and just praying for the right people to see it is to uh, contact ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter has built a platform that finds the right job candidates for you. ZipRecruiter learns that it's what you're looking for, identifies people with the right experience, and invites them to apply to your job. These imitations have revolutionized how you find your next hire. In fact, just 80% of employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. And ZipRecruiter does not just stop there. They even spotlight the strongest applications <laughs> you receive so you never miss a great match. So the right candidates are out there all right. ZipRecruiter is how you find them. Businesses of all sizes trust ZipRecruiter for their hiring needs. Right now, my listeners, our listeners, uh, can try ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, F-R-E-E. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com grant. That's ZipRecruiter.com com slash grant ZipRecruiter, Zip recruiter the smartest way to hire so um, Francine, I, let's 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 press on these questions are getting better and better and i must <laughs> yeah so uh, what duty uh, do auditors uh, uh, have to uh, to a company's management and uh, to that company's investors, Is it owe? Is it an auditor owe anything like fiduciary duty to anybody except the person who's writing a check?
1: Well, this is a this is a fundamental independent conflict of the way the audit process up. The auditors are hired by the company through the board of directors the audit committee. That's who is supposed to control them, not the CFO. Review their work, make sure that they're uh, you know that they remain independent. However. You know, their true client, the shareholder and the public market. So just because you're an auditor and you're, you know, achieving a a goal, you know, to disclose and to give good information to the shareholder of that company doesn't mean that you don't have a higher purpose, which is you have this sort of government-sponsored franchise um, as a CPA to provide a service, sort of a a quasi-regulatory service to the capital markets as a whole. And so when you don't do your duty at one particular company, You've done a disservice to the markets as a whole because you've you've implicated the integrity of the financial reporting process of the market. May, as maybe a whole.
2: you could talk about how this works because when you were an auditor, you obviously dealt with your clients and you'd have interactions with them daily. And while your end customer might have been the investors themselves, can you talk us about how it actually works in real life? Like, how do auditors see themselves? How do they interact with management? How do they? Yeah,
0: or does it, Francine does 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 an auditor in the history of auditing has ever? You know, one spoken up and said to manager, you know, it's awfully nice to work here. And I, I do appreciate my salary. But, you know, I have a higher duty, first of all, uh, to uh, yeah, the Ten Commandments. And secondly, or, uh, first, no, second to the Ten Commandments, but first to the integrity of the public markets. Is that, has that speech ever been given?
1: Well, you know, I go out and speak to schools, to accounting programs um, where they get their master's in accounting, the ones that are being fed into the big four. I go out there a lot. I go to all schools. I've been everywhere uh, recently. I talk to students about this. And I get invitations from professors who understand these concepts and are trying to convey them. But the firms themselves, unfortunately, once you become, you know, you get on board, the client service aspect of the job sort of takes over. Sounds and, like a for uh, force. Yeah. And, you know, they, they really, really emphasize this idea of building the relationship. There was a recent um, news story, uh, POGO, the Project on Government Oversight, did a long story about uh, a very senior person at PwC who is now a whistleblower. He was out in Silicon Valley, and he has a whole litany of examples of where, you know, he was, you know, that's enough of that, Uh, you know, don't upset the apple cart, Uh, we're not going to do that, the client will be unhappy, you're making everybody look bad, you know, this kind of thing. It's amazing he survived to be a senior manager, which is, you know, a near partner. Um, but that's why he's not a partner, and that's why he's now out and is a whistleblower. You know, Pogo, Pogo, was, uh, lot Pogo
0: when it was a cartoon strip, a uh, famous line, we have met the enemy... Yes. And he is, yeah, all yes. so right, he is us. Yes.
2: So, um, Evan, proceed. Uh, how much variance is there in the quality of audits be- between and within the big four?
0: Yeah, is it, is it the big four, or is it like the conglomeration of one?
1: The quality is, the firms like to say, is is a firm kind of commitment. However, it's really, really is highly dependent on the individual partner. You have partners that are committed to be the lead on, on engagements for five years, and then they have to rotate. So there's no uh, audit firm rotation. That's never been... Uh, allowed here in the U.S. But you do have partner rotations since fact. And so what you find is that you have partners who have survived this sort of gauntlet of, you know, being beat down and being told, you know, go, go along, get along. And they want to do the right thing. And they also realize the potential liability if something goes wrong, um, their name is going to be on the, uh, you know, on the on the uh, indictment or on the complaint. But they, you know, they're sort of, pressure, pressure, pressure from the firm. If you have a good partner, you're going to have a good uh, adversarial pushback, uh, you know, back and forth relationship with a client. But if that client complains to the firm, you may just as quickly see that firm decide that in order to keep the relationship, they're going to replace that partner. So it's a very strong uh, relationship between the firms and their clients to try to maintain good relationships. And that includes getting sort of these wild cares, you know, out of the way when they when they poke up too much. Firms do not resign audit because the client is doing something bad. They resign audits because they want to get themselves out of the way of liability and they don't raise their hand and tell anybody. They just let another firm take its place and see if they can talk the client into doing something better. So it, the, the quality varies by, by partner. Which is why it's so wonderful now that the regulator, the PTAOB, um, got through a new rule that says you can look up who the partner is on a particular public company audit engagement. And you'll be able to look and see now uh, does that partner. That have guy. Some record? That guy's back. Yeah. yeah.
0: Right. Hey, Francine. Is there a
1: record of, of disciplinary or litigation, right. or are they auditing too many clients? Right. clients he, he, he's out of jail
0: else? already. Hey, Francine. <laughs> tell us, uh, finally, if you would please, about the uh, proliferation of. Non-gap. Now I remember. I think it must have been uh, 20 years ago. Uh, some very, very thoughtful and uh, indeed uh, intellectually courageous people at Moody's came out and attacked EBITDA as a concept. It, uh, it was unrigorous. It was uh, kind of uh, achy, faky, and it that um, it, it played into the uh, to the markets uh, interest in seeing things better than they were, and so on. And and so EBITDA was then somewhat controversial. And now, really, it seems I don't know. It's, it looks as if it were a part of GAP. It looks almost legit. Tell us about the proliferation of these non-GAAP uh, measures and how far they have gone and what stops them from going further.
1: So you know, this is a, something that goes in cycles, as you mentioned, and you'll get companies, especially in certain industries, that'll sort of go over the line and it'll get to be too much and the SEC will snap back on it. Um, and the last time that happened was May of 2016. They came out finally with some new guidelines and said, you know, clarify what is or isn't allowed. And they put up some pretty strict guidelines. And we we had been reporting on that and we reported for a whole year on how the SEC then started enforcing, you know, sort of some of these bright lines in terms of what was or was or wasn't acceptable. But companies were in a lot of cases just arrogant and incorrigible. They kept doing it. And the reason why they kept doing it is because it tells the story that they want to tell. You know, they can do this until they get caught. Investors who want to see a better story because they want their shares to keep, you know, rising in price don't want bad news. They don't want uneven results. They don't want inconsistent results. I mean, such that even Warren Buffett who supposedly criticized non-GAAP, uses non-GAAP and is going to use it even more because now he doesn't like the fact that you have to uh, report unrealized gains and losses on your, your portfolio in net income. So, you know, now he's got another thing that he doesn't like, uh, accounting stocks. He's going to, they're going to add more non-GAAP information to the Berkshire Hathaway financial statements. So even a stalwart like Warren Buffett, as supposed stalwart like Warren Buffett, If he sees something he doesn't like and he wants to tell a different story, he's using these metrics. So the SEC, you know, is like whack-a-mole with the non-gap. And even the analysts are uh, resistant. And the reason why the analysts are resistant to anything is because, to any crackdown, is because they have models built on this basis and they don't want the companies to stop using them because then they have to rebuild all their models. And I say this because they've told me this. Yeah,
0: well Evan, it seems to me that what Francine is describing is a little journalistic opening, right? Yeah, so- uh... Yeah, we've
1: been told by companies, we can't report something anymore because the SEC says we can't do it that way anymore. But here's the numbers, because our shareholders and the analysts still want this metric, and we want you journalists to still report it. Uh-huh. And the analysts. told them no.
0: The analysts, yes. the pep squad yes. of Wall Street. Anyway, yes. Francine, thank you. This has been uh, delightful. And I say, in addition to being delightful, it has been inspiring. So what we at Grants are going to do, Francine McKenna, what we are going to do is to take your lead and go out there and just make more trouble. All right?
1: You guys on board with us? Oh, yeah.
0: Heck yes. Okay.
1: Um, rah, rah. Okay.
0: Thank you, Francine. Wonderful to talk to you. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening to Grant's Interest Rate Observer of the Air. Talk to you soon.